Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're doing part two of our response to Kerrigan Skelly. And he has a video out on YouTube entitled, Why I Am Not an Open Theist. And in this video, he presents uh, various uh, arguments why he himself has not embraced open theism. He's open. He's considered it. He's gone over the literature of open theism, so he's well-versed in what arguments arguments that open theists do proffer, but but he lists these various reasons why he himself is not, and it's just an overview of his reasons. He's got more that are not on this video, but these are his most prominent ones, and this section of his video that we're responding to is more of his biblically-based arguments. He self-categorizes them. He says his first part was more philosophical, and his second part is his more biblical response, and his response is, to open theism in the second part, they're not your typical Arminian arguments. They're not your typical Calvinist arguments. So they're worth listening to. They're worth considering. And they're worth actually, you know, hearing out. So let's hear them right now. So addressing one of their objections philosophically. All right, let's go to some scriptural reasons here. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, of course, my objections scripturally to the open theist perspective is going to be a lot different than the Calvinist objections. Uh, they'll automatically go to Isaiah chapter 46, I believe, um, or they'll go to John 6, or Romans 9, or Ephesians 1, etc. And I don't think those, those verses actually say what the Calvinists assert they're saying. Uh, so my objection will be different. My objections mostly have to do with the future free will choices of man when it comes to departing from the faith or choosing salvation. And so we look at some passages about that, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, <clears throat> either by spirit or by word or by letters, if from us, as though the day of Christ had come, talking about the day of Christ, the last day when he comes back, uh, not to be troubled as if that day had already come. And he says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that they will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So according to the Apostle Paul, the day of Christ, the last day will not come. But no one deceived that the last day will not come unless the falling away comes first. My question is this, how could God possibly know with certainty that a falling away will ever come? Because falling away according to the open theist perspective, and of course according to my perspective as well, is a free will choice of a man. To fall away from the faith or apostatize is a free will choice of man. And God couldn't possibly know that with certainty unless, of course, he was bringing it to pass by his own power. But now, if we're going to say that, we're back to Calvinism. Uh, so man has free will in the future, and the Apostle Paul says in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the day, last day will not come unless the falling away happens first. All right, so let's uh, dissect that a little bit. I'm going to pull up on my screen what we're talking about here, 2 Thessalonians 2. And Paul's talking about this uh, son of perdition or son of destruction in the ESV. I don't usually use the NSV. I usually use the New King James for the New Testament. The son of perdition, there's this falling away. And what does this falling away mean? Is it apostasy? Yeah, it might be apostasy. We're not. It's not really clarified. In context, there's some sort of power person that comes to power who who leads people astray 
And it's possibly this a Gentile type figure that leads people from the faith. What faith? Is it uh, the faith in Yahweh or is it Christianity? We're, we're not sure what's going on here. But how can God be sure that people are going to reject him? We talked in our last podcast, how do I know things about the future? Usually, like, I know how people act. I know how people respond. And so I'm able to make these predictions, right? And then let's add on a, a couple more ways we could bring his argument. Uh, what kind of time frame are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with uh, it's going to happen within 100 years, within 200 years? Kerrigan Skelly here in, in this video, he thinks it's going to happen past 2,000 years from this event. So literally, there's no time frame that Kerrigan Skelly would not accept for fulfillment of this prophecy. This prophecy could take 20 million years, and then it happens, and then it's a fulfilled prophecy. So in that context, how can God be sure that this happens? Well, when you got an unlimited time frame, and you already know how people act and respond, yeah, I think you could know that there's going to be some sort of falling away, in some sort of sense. And... And just, just consider what type of prophecy fulfillment we see Calvinists and Arminians accepting. They accept that the prophecy of Tyr was fulfilled, even though it was against the inhabitants of the time, for their own wickedness. They think that that prophecy was fulfilled 250 years later through Alexander the Great. They are willing to forego the context of the prophecy, the details of the prophecy, in exchange for a very similar event 250 years later. So when you give prophecy unlimited leeway, uh, like Arminians and Calvinists do to claim all sorts of fulfilled prophecies throughout the Bible, and then you give unlimited time frame, it's, it's pretty easy to make these predictions. You don't need knowledge of the future. You don't. If something just vaguely similar to the prophecy has to happen in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled. It doesn't take a genius. But let, let's, let's go into the context of Jesus' ministry, of Paul's ministry. What were they actually preaching? So we're, we're going to bring his, uh, his claims one step further. And uh, I, I write a lot of articles. Uh, some of the articles I write is on this site, Reality is Not Optional. And I have an article entitled, The Worst Failed Biblical Prophecy. There, there, are, there are failed prophecies in the Bible. It's admitted in the Bible. And uh, it's not like the prophets have a freak out over a failed prophecy. These things, they do happen, and usually they happen because changing circumstances. And one thing we find in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, are all these prophecies of a soon return of Jesus, a soon return of uh, the Son of God, a soon end of the world, soon end of the world. And, you know, as I read the Bible, as I read the New Testament, th this article I point to a lot of verses. I quote a lot of verses. I keep finding more and more verses because this was a legitimate thought in the minds of Jesus, in the minds of the 12 apostles, in the minds of Paul. Paul, everyone thought the end was nigh, that the people living at the time of their ministry were going to see uh, the judgment of God, the day of Yahweh. When God returns to earth and judges the wicked and establishes the righteous kingdom. You see, you see hints everywhere. Jesus says, uh, you know, it, the end is here. The apocalypse is at hand. People say, people he spoke to will not die before it happened. Generation would not pass away before it came. 
everyone would soon see the Son of Man sitting in the clouds. The disciples could not even go through the cities of Israel before it happened. The current age was when everything is going to occur. The end is nigh. The people who Jesus spoke to would see it just as they see spring. And Jesus chastised the people for not seeing the time had come. And for the people who are not looking at uh, the visual of this podcast, Matthew 4, 17, 10, 7, 21, 34, Mark 1, 15, Matthew 16, 27 through 28, Matthew 24, 25 through 34, Matthew 26, 63 through 64, Matthew 10, 23, Luke 21, 22, Luke 21, 28, Luke 21, 31, Luke 12, 56. Oh, we go on and on. It's just, they continue in teaching till the end is nigh. First Peter 4, 7. They believe they're living in the last days. Hebrews 1, 2. First Peter 1, 20. We're talking about the end of the ages. Hebrews 9, 26. People would they could see the end hebrews 10 25 it's the last hour first john 2 18 oh man it just goes on and here's the thing here's the thing that i i really think is funny um we talk about let me hit refresh here i kind of updated this article because i was like this is a really important one in daniel 12 4 9 this is apocalyptic chapter he says this book is sealed because these prophecies of end times are not going to happen yet two thousand years later we get jesus and the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it says the time is at hand. Don't seal up this book. Guess what? In today's age, we're sitting 2,000 years later after Revelation's written. So in Daniel, they sealed the book because, you know, it's going to be a while before these things happen. 2,000 years later, we get Jesus, and then we get a statement saying, don't seal the book of these prophecies because they're going to happen. And now we're sitting here 2,000 years later. Is this a failed prophecy? Or, or did God change his mind based on circumstances? Circumstances such as we read in Romans about God rejecting the Jews, cutting them off, and turning to the Gentiles. That, that, that's basically the only way to make sense of these prophecies, these clear prophecies that the end days was then, it was going to happen then, Everything that they were talking about was going to happen within their own lifetimes, and that never happened. It never happens. So if you're going to salvage, you're, you're, you're going to try to salvage all of these, and then you're going to claim that your prophecy in Second Thessalonians, that's your case for Arminianism over open theism. It doesn't work like that, because Second Thessalonians 2 is in the context of either a failed prophecy or a changed prophecy. That's the context. And all these end day prophecies are in that context. And when you go back and you read all the prophecies, the apocalypse prophecies in the exilic prophets, some of them have contradictions. Some of them are a little bit different than each other. And it's, it's usually prophecies like a general idea. The details don't necessarily have to come true because prophecy is not foretelling the future. Prophecy isn't. It's it's giving general ideas of what will or could happen, and it doesn't necessarily have to happen in all its details. That's just how prophecy works. And if if you're sitting at home and you're listening to this and you're you're kind of mad at me for I don't know anything I just said, uh, I'm not your typical open theist. So just if you're just going to discount what me for what I said about your particular prophecy that you think came true or or your particular understanding of 
these New Testament statements that the end is nigh, that the end is coming. You know, don't take that as indicative of all open theism, you know. You know, some people tend, tend to have that thing where they project what Burst. I believe on all open theism. Uh. Flattering, flattering, but not quite accurate. So let's keep hearing Kerrigan Skelly as he talks. Uh, but for all we know, for all God knows, if God doesn't know the future for choices of man, for all God knows, no one will ever fall away from the faith. Uh, but this is talking about, obviously, this was written around, you know, the 60s AD. We're talking about almost 2,000 years removed from that, and that day has not come yet. So God is saying with certainty something that will happen about 2,000 years into the future, because Christ hasn't come back yet. And the man of lawlessness... There's that 2,000 years. We already talked about that. So he gives this prophecy unlimited leeway, and then also says, you know, it could be infinite into the future. It says, God must know the future... Well, no, not if he gives the person infinite amount of time to fall away. It's the son of perdition. The Antichrist has not been revealed to the abomination of desolation. So that's, that's one verse there. Uh, then let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says, or explicitly says, that in a latter time some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So here we have, once again, the Apostle Paul and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was, here's a little uh, tip. It was happening within Paul's lifetime. Uh, we, we see him dealing all the time with people who are incorporating Gnosticism into the church, saying that uh, Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. And he says, these people are heretics and their faith is in vain. And he rails against these deceiving doctrines. And we see in Revelation as well, these, these scrolls are opened up. Keep, keep in mind that these scrolls are open and read to churches which are no longer in existence. So is that a failed prophecy? Are you going to explain that away? Does that have unlimited leeway as well? But these prophecies, or the, these scrolls, they describe situations which were currently happening in the church. People are falling away. That's not hard to predict. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit expressly or explicitly says, sounds like certainty to me, uh, that in the latter times, times after what Paul's talking about here, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now this could have been 100 years after Paul, could have been 50 years, could have been 10 years after Paul, but the point is, it's latter times. Uh, I think it's actually talking about the very latter times, probably the seven-year period of tribulation, um, but that's just beside the point. It's talking about the future from when Paul wrote it. And was talking about the future when Paul wrote it, and departing from the faith is a future free will decision of man to give in. People are already doing it. People are already doing it. Into deceiving spirits and doctors of demons. Uh, and God, God knows a certainty here. How could he possibly know a certainty if open theism is, is correct? Uh, so that's another reason why I disagree with open theism. Now let's go to Revelation. We've been studying Revelation in our home fellowship lately. And that's been very fruitful to me. But in studying it, I've seen some issues with open theism once again, because Revelation is mostly dealing, in my opinion, with the future. Now, if you don't... Yeah, I, I, think, I think so, too. Revelation is not written for the fall of Jerusalem in 70, 80, or something like that. But in Revelation, another thing to keep in mind, kind of on, on the topic of things we talked about already, the temple is still standing. So the temple being torn apart by the Romans was not foreseen. It was not understood by the author of Revelation. This is not like a picture into the window, in, into the future, like 
like I'm time traveling and I'm reporting back with the details of my time traveling escapade. No, this is a vision of what likely is going to happen where there's horses still and uh, you know people people claim to see all sorts of things. Oh, there's paratroopers and airplanes. No, there's not. There's not. Uh, he sees all these things that are specific to his time. He's reading letters to churches of the time. The temple's still in existence. This is your standard vision. It's not teleportation to the future. It's not seen in the future with the crystal ball. Oh, I'm clairvoyant and I'm Nostradamus. That's funny, Nostradamus. So using the same standard the Christians do for prophecy fulfillment, Nostradamus must have been a genius. I guess that's neither here nor there. Well, let's continue to listen to Kerrigan. I'll agree with that. That's fine. Uh, but I, I believe it's very clearly talking about the future. Let's look at the fifth seal. That's true. Found in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So now we have God telling these martyrs, people who have been martyred for the faith, to wait for their prayers to be answered, their, their prayers of having vengeance for those who killed um, them and the other fellow martyrs, when their blood will be avenged. And God said, wait a little bit longer until the full number of all the martyrs have come in. Now, two things here. Um, martyring someone, killing a Christian for being a Christian, is a free will choice of a man who decides to kill them. Unless, of course, God's determining this. And it's in the future, at least at this point, when John wrote this between 90 and 100 AD, it's in the future. And uh, I believe it hasn't happened yet. Uh, I believe he's talking about the seven-year period as well. But anyway, the point is that how could God know with certainty exactly how many to be killed or that any more at all would be killed when killing a Christian for being a Christian is a free will decision? And a decision in which these people, if they, if they themselves don't repent and trust in Christ, it will be guilty of the judgment day before the throne of God for killing Christians for being Christians. Not only that, how does God know that there will be any more martyrs at all, period? Because, for all he knows, all people who have the chance of being a martyr could depart from the faith and choose not to be martyrs and deny Christ, and there will be no more martyrs at all. So apparently I got a couple articles already written to Skelly. I remembered one, but uh, I did not recall the other. Let's uh, pull this over here real quickly here. I got one on Apologetics Thursday, Skelly on Revelation 10, 6. I also got one skelly on 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians kind of sums up my argument that I just went over, but it's not as detailed. So my audio is more detailed. Revelation 6, though, you know, he says, how, how does God know this number, this tip, tipping point is going to come? Um, the funny thing is, we don't see in this description of the future events, we don't see any time frames, any hard numbers, Nothing to indicate that uh, this is like a de facto event that's being foreseen. Rather than, rather than God just waiting until circumstances are correct in order to intervene in history. So in that sense, this is more of an open theist idea rather than an Arminian or Calvinist idea. Because 
God doesn't seem to have the time frame in mind. He has the circumstances in mind that he wants to happen, but it's just not now, and he's waiting for the opportunity. You know, then let's go back, just what we said earlier. How can God know these things are going to happen? How, how can God know people are going to get martyred? Human behavior is easy to predict. And if you remember from part one, Mr. Kerrigan Skelly, he predicted the deaths of his grandparents and father or whatever. He predicted those things and he said he knows that they will happen. So even he admits to knowing the future. Of course, if you corner him, he'd say, well, I guess I don't know that for sure. But in normal conversation, he'll say he knows the future. Because we bring a different standard when we start talking about God. Let's pour it. At all. So those are the two issues I see with that verse. And um, it, just, it just makes no sense to me how, how God can know with certainty that there'll be any more martyrs because, one, will any more be killed, which is the free will choice, and two, will there be any more who willing to stand fast to the end? I'm sure God would love it. He would just absolutely be amazed if no more martyrs were ever killed. And he, he, would, he would rejoice and celebrate. But how likely is that to happen? Like, not at all. There's, like, no likelihood. Just incredibly minuscule. And and would he say, oh, no, my, my prophecy is just gone, destroyed. Oh, how can I live with myself? He would celebrate. He'd celebrate. God celebrates when sheep returned him. That, that's God's character. And he, guess what? God values people over prophecy. So when Nineveh repents, God celebrates. He's, he's not like Jonah, who's sitting there all furious that the prophecy didn't come true, who wanted the Ninevites, who were incredibly wicked. They were very, very wicked people. Uh, Jonah wanted them punished. Jonah had this strong sense of justice. He wanted a right to be done on earth. But God cares more about people than prophecy. Let that sink in. And so if a prophecy fails and a lot of good things happen, God is happy rather than sad. Keep playing. And, and be killed for their faith. Uh, so that, that's a problem I had with, with that passage. And then there's Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20. And this is the sixth trumpet here. And um, there were three plagues here. There was fire, smoke, and brimstone. The four angels who were bound at a great river Euphrates were bringing about these issues to hurt, to hurt a, or to kill a third of the man, uh, mankind. But the rest of the mankind who wasn't killed, we see in verse 20 their reaction. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by... Yeah, notice in Revelation, Revelation uses a lot of uh, symbolic numbers. They use a lot of symbolic imagery. They use a lot of hyperbolic uh, situations. This is not foreseeing the future. This is a vision of what could happen in the future and approximations of what's planned. So it's not a crystal ball. There's no time travel involved. And we understand that by what is written, what's described, and the fact that everyone in the modern world debates about what this is saying, how symbolic it is, what all these images mean. It, it's just evidence this is not a crystal ball clairvoyance of the future. It's just not. By these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear. Uh, nor hear nor walk and did not repent in their murders of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts so here we have after the sixth trumpet uh, getting towards the very end after the seventh trumpet Christ comes back 
Uh, so at the, at the very end, towards the very end of, of the time, sixth trumpet here, uh, God sends a plague that killed a third of the mankind, and nobody repents. And obviously that's the goal God has here, is that they will repent. But none of them do repent. But repenting, according to open theism, according to open theists, is a free will choice. And obviously this is talking about the f a future free will choice of these men, uh, but all of the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, or their sex immorality, or their thefts. Now, if God wants all to be saved and for none to perish, as the open theists believe and as I believe, but he's speaking about the future free will choices of man, that none of them, after this sixth trumpet is blown, after these three plagues are unleashed upon mankind, to kill a third of the mankind, that those who are left, the two-thirds that are left, none of them will repent. How could God know that? Let's, let's say I'm an economics professor, and I get in a class of freshmen. I want them to all to be economically literate, right? So I spend my entire semester teaching them Econ 101. I will foreknow, I'll foreknow, that most of those people are going to walk out of the class and reject what I've taught them. They're going to reject Economics 101. They'll continue on being socialists and... Uh, you know, advocating things like minimum wages and, and protectionism. They'll be against free trade. I can predict those things because I know how people act and how they behave. And a lot of these statements, like when the Bible says these guys won't repent, it just means the vast majority of them are not going to repent. So people, in general, are not going to turn to God. It's not something that can't be predicted. That's something that can be predicted and can be known. I can predict these things about populations in general just because we know how people act. And people hate God. They hate God. You explain to them who God is, what he stands for. They don't like it. And again, all our previous arguments still stand fast. And this is in the context of the book of Revelation, which it said that these things will shortly come to pass. It's been 2,000 years later. Compared to Jeremiah, where it says that seal this up because these things have not yet, uh, these things aren't coming past any, in any like short time frame. 2,000 years to Christ. What's going on there? What's going on there? You got some explaining to do, Mr. Skelly. If Arminianism is correct, if Calvinism, Calvinism is correct in their views of God's foreknowledge of the future, Revelation just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with your theology. And it just has to be a failed prophecy, and you might as well exclude it from the Bible if that's the case. If God does not know the future free will choices of man, the only way he could is if he determined it himself. Now we're back to Calvinism once again, which obviously I believe is unbiblical. Uh, and you can look at the rest of my videos on this channel to see why I believe it's unbiblical. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to go through two, different, two other small passages here. Matthew chapter 7. Uh, in verse 13 and 14. Now, some of the open theist friends I have are open-air preachers. And I'll hear them quote this verse quite a bit. And even if they're not open-air preachers, we have discussions about Calvinism, whether it's true or not with other people, like on Facebook or message boards. They'll quote these, these verses, or they'll quote these verses to uh, unsaved people um, when they ask them, well, why haven't you had a lot of people get saved in your meetings? They'll say, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way at least to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. So many go through the broad gate. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So there's few who find a narrow gate, many who go to the wide gate, which is hell and heaven. Few will be saved, most will not be saved. 
But question is, if God doesn't know the future free choices of future free will choices of man, and deciding to go on the narrow gate instead of the, the wide gate is a future free will decision, at least for people who aren't born yet, and people who were not born yet when this was written around the 60s A.D., the book of the Gospel of Matthew, and when Jesus spoke that in the early 30s A.D., um, how could 1,700 years, or uh, almost 2,000 years later, how could Jesus know that? Yeah, pretty easy. Uh, I could say that, you know, even if econ is taught to all Americans, the vast majority of them are going to reject basic economics in favor of their gut uh, socialism, their mental dependency. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, please save me. You get that in religion, too, where people are like, if God didn't know the future, I can't believe in God because I'm very insecure about God not knowing the future. And that worries me very much. It's like, what are you talking about? The, the insecurity is just maddening. But, yeah, you can know things about groups of people, especially when you're controlling conditions in your statements, like, like basic knowledge of economics. Not everyone grasps economics, and a lot of people reject basic economics. So I can make pretty big class categorizations about how people are going to react, even if they're taught. God can, too. It, I'm not seeing how this is an argument for future foreknowledge. In light of everything we've already talked about already, how prophecy has a lot of leeway and infinite amount of time, in Kerrigan Skelly's belief. How, for all he knows, from that point on, every single human being would no. go the narrow gate, no, and very few like, would go the wide gate. And if that happened for the last 2,000 years, um, then this, what Jesus said here, would not be. So, Mr. Kerrigan Skelly, when you go street preaching, and let's say all those verses of the Bible just, just burned up, you would be out there thinking, Guess what? There is a probability that everyone listening, or a vast majority, is just can convert to what I'm saying right here, right now. You're not going to go out there with that attitude because you understand how people act and how people operate. You already know the future in aggregate, don't you? You do. And to deny just basic knowledge of humans to God, saying that God needs to be so ignorant that he can't predict human actions... Uh, that it's, it doesn't invalidate open theism. That just shows kind of a misunderstanding of how God knows things, how the future works, how predictions work, and, and how you, you really understand how people act, right? True. It would, it would be a lie. So my point is most open theists treat these verses as if they're certainty. If there's some kind of certainty behind it that's definite that many will go to hell and few will, will go to heaven. Uh, based upon these two verses. And there, if God is an open theist God, he doesn't know the future free will choices of man because not in the realm of knowledge, he couldn't possibly know them, then I don't see how they can treat these verses with certainty. That's just impossible if they're going to be consistent. And then there's Peter's denial in Mark chapter 14. Now this is one the Calvinists do bring up at times. And uh, one that I've looked at quite a bit. In fact, this is one of the first objections I have when I started studying this issue. And it seemed to, the answer that I got at first seemed to satisfy me, but they don't satisfy me longer. So I'm really pushing the issue a little harder here. Mark chapter 14, and we'll start in verse uh, 27. Now Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
After I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to Peter, to him, I surely I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, Likewise. So, here we have Jesus uh, saying with certainty that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And he, says, he emphasizes the certainty he has by saying in verse 30, Assuredly, I say to you, that today, even this night before the rooster crows, twice, you will deny me three times. Now, the atheist would say, well, God, God knows Peter's heart, his condition, his character. He knows what the devil's planning to do by uh, setting these people in place to, uh, to, get, to ask him these questions. And, of course, God can control the rooster. So as soon as Peter did it the third time, God can make the rooster crow because it's an animal. It's not a free will creature like we are uh, with moral accountability. So those issues are not an issue. But the issue is Peter denying Christ, according to open theists and according to me, is a free will decision. And when Jesus predicted that, it was uh, you know at least 12, 24 hours away before Peter actually did it. And he was, he was saying with certainty, assuredly I tell you, uh, a future free will choice of Peter. Not only one future free will choice, but three. For each time Peter denied, it was a free will choice. I do not know him. I do not know him. I do not know him. So let's let's talk about this real quickly here. Did Jesus know everything? Was Jesus omniscient? What is Kerrigan Skelly's argument? He's saying the only way Jesus can know this is some sort of omniscience of the future. Did Jesus claim to be omniscient of the future? Well, let's find out what Jesus says. He says, of the end times, and I will make this bigger for people on screen, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, which is himself, but only the Father. You know, this is a pretty clear verse. I also have articles that go through the book of John, which he's quoting here. Um, the jo in, in John, in John, Jesus is not omniscient. And so Kerrigan Skelly, his argument that the three denials predicted by Jesus is proof of total omniscience of the future, he's not even quoting someone who's omniscient of the future. Your argument falls apart. So Jesus is not omniscient of the future. What was the mechanism that he did gain this knowledge? Uh, did God communicate it to him? Hmm? Does the text say that? Not really. Was this a warning to get Peter to change his ways? Was this something that Jesus knew from being with Peter, knowing his heart, spending three years with them, and knowing his temperament, and setting up the conditions for him to fail? If Peter succeeded, if Peter succeeded, would it uh, would it even have been made into the Bible? Would, it, would this passage go into the Bible, or would it be celebrated as uh, overcoming overcoming his? trials and temptations those are the questions this does not prove omniscience of the future because jesus was not omniscient so what are you trying to prove here you're trying to prove that a non-omniscient being had omniscience of the future jesus admits he does not know things jesus is not omniscient and, and the calvinists they go back and forth and they say oh jesus had these latent abilities these latent uh 
omniscience and omnipotence and stuff like that is there, there's nothing in the Bible that says this. There's nothing. And there's nothing that indicates it. And there's nothing that says this knowledge is coming from this latent omniscience of the future. And it's not like Jesus just toggles his omniscience on and off, depending what passage you're in. Maybe, maybe if you're a skeptic of the Bible, that would be your argument that the Bible is contradictory because it displays Jesus as omniscient in one passage and non-omniscient in the other. If you're a skeptic, if you're an atheist, it makes sense. But for Kerrigan Skelly to use this as proof of omniscience, I, I don't think he's thinking through his argument. He's just not. Let's hear him. And for all Jesus knew, if he doesn't know the, the future free choices of man, um, how could he know that Peter would deny him even once, let alone three times? He because you, you can predict what people are going to do, especially if you spend three years in close connection with someone and know their temperament and then set up the circumstances. If you know someone's going to, like, uh, your your husband looks at pornography, you could you could set up certain circumstances where he looks at it three times while you videotape it and then expose him on it. You know, you, you can know what people are going to do in circumstances and it could be a trial, it could be a learning experience, and if they succeed, more power to them. It's not like it undermines omniscience. Oh, we gotta rewrite the Bible and rip the Bible apart if it doesn't happen exactly as it said. <clears throat> we don't see that in the Bible. That's not the purpose of prophecy. Could stop at the first one. He could at the after the first one. He could have said, "Yes, I know him. I've been crucified along Jesus, like he said he would have." Uh, he could have denied him once and then went away weeping bitterly. He could have denied him two times and stopped then and went away weeping bitterly. Or he could have done it three times, like I said, or he'd done it even four times if he wanted to. So I guess that is my question to Kerrigan Skelly. Was Jesus omniscient of the future? <clears throat> if Jesus is not omniscient of the future, and he makes these predictions, can a non-omniscient being know the future? That, that's all you're proving. That's all you're proving that someone without omniscience can know the future. But, uh, yeah, and if you claim Jesus was omniscient, yeah, you're just, you're not reading the Bible, you're not reading John, you're not reading Mark, and you're off the mark. So now we start getting into Kerrigan Skelly's historical arguments against open theism. And uh, this is your typical stuff. We've all responded to a lot of it on God is Open. And I got a lot of papers on early Christianity. My uh, honors thesis actually for college was on the Platonization of Christianity, entitled The Hellenization of Christianity. You can just Google it, Chris Fisher. It's available on Scribd, on academia.edu. It's available on my website. So a lot of places you could get it, you could read it, you could see how Platonized early Christianity was. But let's hear them out. Scriptural issues I have with open theism. And now I look at the historical issue I have with open theism. And uh, I'm under the, the belief, under the impression that if any doctrine is new, it couldn't possibly be from God, because according to Jude, I believe Jude 3, uh, we have, back then they had the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And if no one believed in open theism back then. Wait, wait, no, no one believed in open theism during the time of Jude? What did Paul write? Paul write, here is how God gains information about you. The Holy Spirit searches you and then reports to God that information. And Jesus is sitting there in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, please, if there's any way to change this, let's do it. 
he, he didn't Jesus didn't have omniscience of the future. He said to God, if there's any way that we could change this, let's do it. Because he thought there might be a way to change the crucifixion. The crucifixion, the crucial event in Christian history, Jesus thought was not a fixed event in history. That's what Jesus thought. Jesus not not a Calvinist, Arminian. Paul is not a Calvinist or Arminian. They're all open theists, all open theists. And it's a fairly new doctrine from what I've seen. Um, I don't see how it could be true. So let's let's look at the uh, what the early church, some of the early church fathers have to say about this issue. Let's read first from Hermas around 150 A.D. The Lord knows the heart and foreknows all things. Right, so as obviously Hermes is saying, God foreknows all things. All right, so Kerrigan Skelly starts talking about Hermes like it's an actual person, not actual person. It's the name of a book, The Shepherd of Hermes. It was written maybe, you know, 150, as he puts it, 100 years or more after Jesus died. So 100 years, 100 years after Jesus died. Let's uh, take a look here and uh, see what people say about it. This is very interesting here. The shepherd speaks of a son of God, but this son of God is distinguished from Jesus. So the writer of the shepherd of Hermes doesn't think Jesus is God, which that's interesting. Is this an authoritative text? Where did it come from? We don't know. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a skeptical text. Some people considered it part of a canon. Some people didn't. It has things that Kerrigan Skelly would consider heresy written in it. And let's take a look at our time frame. This is my, uh, it's my timeline of early Christianity, of early Christianity. And you see here just when and where these people start coming into the church, when people with not Christian backgrounds, but Platonic backgrounds, when they start be infiltrating the church. Justin Martyr, uh, 100 to 165, he came from Platonism. He loved Platonism. He said, this is the best stuff ever. I like it. You know, you got the Gnostics coming in about that time frame. Uh, Valentinius, Marcion, soon after. The, this is when the Judaism was on the decline in Christianity. The, the Jewish Christians were all dying out. They got killed in 70 AD during the fall of Jerusalem. And the Gentiles started taking over the church just in this time frame. So anything after 70 AD, anything in the 100s and past, it's this Gentile-dominated church bringing in their Platonism, their Platonistic doctrines. So it's suspect as is. And especially when he's quoting these things that have what he would consider heretical statements about Jesus in them. You know, is this, is this the text you want to be quoting? Maybe. Thanks. Uh, not just what can be known, but he foreknows all things. That's Hermes around 150 AD. Justin Martyr around 160 AD. He foreknows that some are to be saved by repentance, some even that are perhaps not yet born. Yeah, and Justin Martyr, he actually details his conversion to Christianity, and he goes through all sorts of different heretical pagan doctrines before coming to Christianity. And he claims, he claims, Platonism is the closest to Christianity. That's what he claims. It's, he also claims that Moses taught Plato. 
These are the claims of these early Christians. They are so insteeped in Platonism, and Platonism was celebrated. And Justin Martyr writes about this too. He says, Platonism is celebrated by the Greeks at the time, by the Romans at the time. Everyone loves Platonism, and lo and behold, Justin Martyr loves Platonism, and then lo and behold, Platonism is the closest thing to Christianity that he could find. So he, like Augustine, let's, let's talk about Augustine's conversion experience. Augustine read the Bible, and he's like, ah, this is disgusting, it's terrible, we should throw it in the trash. You know, just throw that thing in the trash and light it on fire. And then he was told, he's told by his mentor Am, Ambrose and Siplicanus, he said, they, they told him, translate the Bible, interpret the Bible in light of Platonism. And then Augustine said, oh, great, now I can believe the Bible. Now I can believe the Bible when I just discount everything written in the Bible and just accept Platonism and then uh, shift it in a Christian sense. Justin Martyr did the same thing. Origen did the same thing. Read, read Origen. Oh, it's, it's utter nonsense. He talks about these the spirit beings that are, they're born and the fall, and he thought it, he believed in pre-existence of the souls. What, what he meant was not that you know the souls pre-exist, but everything's part of the same substance, and there's a cycle of coming together and falling away of the one. It's Platonism. It's definitely in the church. It's definitely prevalent at the time. And Justin Martyr admits to coming from that tradition. So let's keep playing. Justin Martyr thoroughly, obviously believes in. God knowing who's going to be saved and who isn't in the future. Justin Martyr says again, in around 160 AD, Let's them suppose from what has been said by us that we say that whatever happens, happens by <laughs> fatal necessity, because it is foretold as known beforehand, this too we explain. So the very issue that open theists and Calvinists bring up is how could God know something and it not be a fatal necessity or it could not be predestined or decreed. The open theist rejects both. And the Calvinist um, holds on to both certainty and necessity, and the open theist rejects both, except for the things that God is going to predetermine, which is very few things. Uh, and then again, Justin Martyr, 160 AD. The Word of God foretells that some angels and they men will be certainly punished. Justin Martyr. It did so because yeah. it foreknew that they would be unchangeable, i.e., we remain wicked. However, this is not because God had created them so. For all who wish for it can obtain mercy from God if they repent. So, he is affirming free will, but he's also affirming exhausted foreknowledge. But he's also denying uh, the predetermination, the God decreeing all things which are come to pass, that the Calvinists assert. Then he got Tatian around 160 AD. The power of the Logos, talking about Jesus, has in itself a faculty to foresee future events. Yet these events are not fated, but take place by the choice of free agents. For Logos foretold from time to time the issues of things to come. So Tatian obviously uh, understands the uh, you know potential conundrum here, and he says that again. Let's look at where Tatian was. He was a disciple not only of the Gnostic Valentinius but also of Justin Martyr. So he's influenced by Gnosticism, Gnosticism, and Justin Martyr. He's a pupil, pupil. And so you're, you're quoting people in the same line. Maybe you might want to go over to uh, the side of the equation. Let's go look at that side of the equation. So there's a side of the equation that comes straight from Peter and John. Uh, Ignatius, Polycarp, way down here, 
Arrhenius. Those are the people you might want to be quoting. And Arrhenius does talk in Platonistic terms. Platonistic terms. He does. But he, look, his, his life span from 130 to 200 AD. 100 years. 100 years after Jesus. 100 years. So imagine what happens in 100 years. What happened in 100 years in the United States? 100 years ago, people were driving around in buggies. We're about World War I. 100 years ago. How much have times changed? How different is our mentality? And then transport that back into ancient Israel. Ancient Israel, where there's not a free flow of communication. Back in Augustine's time, they thought that Manichaeanism was Christianity. People believed this stuff. It just, the most crazy nonsense they would believe and they would spread. And they didn't have access to the Bible. No one had access to the Bible. There wasn't widespread distribution of texts like you have in today's world. And so one of the big early Christian debates was what texts are legit and which ones are fake. And they had debates about this stuff because it wasn't set and people were off believing their own things just randomly everywhere. So with that being the case, how are you quoting people from past 100 AD as evidence for your belief? In, in, in certain evidence that all these people were descended from the Platonists. Even though he foretells future events, they happen by the choice of free agents, and they're not fated. Uh, Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, as some people would uh, pronounce him, around 180 AD, the Lord has plainly declared, and the rest of the scriptures have demonstrated, that eternal fire is prepared for sinners. For God, uh, God foreknew that this would happen. This yeah, let's, let's go look at that chart again here. So about 180 is when he's writing, perhaps, perhaps. And guess what? All the Platonization happened uh, over here in about the 180s when the Platonists took over the prominent positions in the church and brought in their doctrines as well, where you got people like Ambrose and Origen uh, saying the same stuff, say, talking Platonism, believing Platonism. You got the Gnostics over here who had viable positions in order to gain control of the church. It's, it's, it wasn't like these Gnostics have always been the outsiders, always pushed, pushed away. They had legitimate stakes in the Christian church during their time competing to be the true church. And they were intermingling with the normal Christians and Valentinius almost was the bishop of Rome. Imagine that. Imagine that. A Gnostic almost took control of Christianity. We'd have a way different Christianity if Valentinius and his ilk took control of Christianity during that time frame. But let's go on. Scripture, scriptures do in like manner demonstrate this. For he prepared eternal fire from the beginning for those who were afterwards to transgress. And we'll read one more from Hippolytus around 225 A.D. God is fully acquainted with whatever is about to take place, for he has foreknowledge. So whatever is about to take place, uh, God is acquainted with it, for he has foreknowledge. Okay, so just to review, that's basically it. So let's go back to this site that I told you about, Early Christian Writings. And let's take a look at... Take a look at the writings. Um, these these writings are dated. I don't agree with all the dates that are given here, but it gives you a good indication of what kind of texts were flowing around that time. 
you know, they put the books of the Bible pretty late. I would date them a little bit earlier, but uh, you could click on the ones that aren't in the Bible and you could read them. And you could read the Gnostics and how the Gnostics wrote and what the Gnostics thought. And you could read more Christian type documents. And why is it, why is it that it's not until a hundred years or more after Jesus dies that you start seeing these, these more definitive types of phrases about knowing the future? Why is that? Could it be, could it be that that's when the church was being Platonized and they started believing these sorts of things? A hundred years after Jesus, uh, 50 or more years after Paul has been on the scene and is dead. Way after, most of these people, most of these original apostles, disciples of Jesus are dead. Philosophical, uh, scriptural, and historical viewpoints. Historically, I don't think open theism has any any uh, foundation to stand upon. Scripturally, I don't think it can ha harmonize all the scriptures. They do have some good points from certain scriptures like uh, Jonah and Nineveh, uh, like Hezekiah having years added to his life. And uh, maybe in a, video, a later video, I'll deal with those issues. But if they can't deal with these issues, I couldn't possibly become an apotheist because God is constantly talking about the future free, future free will choices of man. And he couldn't possibly know those from the open theist perspective with any kind of certainty unless, of course, he of necessity caused those things to happen. And then philosophically, I don't think certainty and necessity are the same thing. I think they're two completely different things. I think they're two. Yeah, and remember what Abraham says. He says, I know that if I go to the city with uh, Sarah, they're going to kill me and they're going to take her and marry her. Uh, was he omniscient of the future? I guess that's another question of mine to Kerrigan Skelly here. Was Abraham omniscient of future events? Or or do people just know what other people are going to do? And people know the future. I know the future. You, you said you know your future. In our previous episode, Kerrigan Skelly, you said you know your grandma and grandpa are going to die. You know the future. I know the future. I know I'm going to die. It, it's... Things can be predicted in the future, free will decisions, things that are contingent, things that, you know, it, that might, might not happen in these rare circumstances, you know, those things can be known. That's just how knowledge works. Two different words and terms for a reason, and uh, they're not the same thing. Someone, something can be certain without being a uh, habit of necessity, and it can still have contingency in the person who's performing those actions. And, of course, God can be angry, sorrowful, sad, mad, uh, even though he knows something will happen, just like we can. It's true. Okay, that's it for now. Hopefully you enjoyed the video. Hopefully you're edified by it. And for those who are out there thinking about these things, hopefully I gave you something to think about. And for my open theism brethren, uh, I love you, and uh, I don't think you're going to hell. I don't think you're heretics of the Calvinists, say, obviously. Um, I appreciate all that you do. And we just have disagreement here. And I wanted to voice it and give my reasons why. Yeah, so just just consider my arguments. Uh, consider how you treat prophecy in the Bible. Try to be consistent in your treatment of what prophecy is, how prophecy is fulfilled, what happens when prophecy is not fulfilled, how you handle that, and apply that to your arguments that you've given today. You just I ask for broad consistency. I ask that you look at the text and just understand I mean, normal communication. You know, how do I know the future? I know the future. How, how do those things work? 
how do the how do people know other people's free will actions? And consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Jesus is not omniscient. Self-admitted by Jesus, not omniscient. Yet he knew the future. And one of your main arguments was Jesus knew the future, and so he had complete omniscience of the future. But Jesus admits to not being omniscient. So you got to square that with your belief somehow. All right, I guess that will be it for today's podcast. Thank you for listening.